High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You must remember just a kid, a child of Welcome to You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. As we noted in our last episode, Polly Platt's unpublished memoir ends abruptly during the post-production of Bottle Rocket in early 1995. By that point, Polly had left her longtime work home at Gracie Films, although she doesn't discuss that exit in the memoir. Whatever reasons Polly had for not writing about it, after the release of Bottle Rocket in 1996, Polly lived for another 15 years and spent many of those years working as a producer, a screenwriter, and an executive. She also made another impassioned effort to direct a film to which she had a major personal connection. There were some interesting detours, a few false starts, and continued struggles with alcoholism. The past always seemed to be with her. 
And then, suddenly, she got sick. And this woman, who had been known for nearly 40 years for her toughness, her tenacity, her ability to put aside her personal comfort and to jeopardize her personal relationships in the fight to make movies better, lost her agency, lost her voice, and lost her life. Join us, won't you, for the final chapter of Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. In the mid-90s, Polly's career was at another turning point. Today, the list of films she had been involved with looks like a stellar track record. But Say Anything and Bottle Rocket weren't theatrical hits and only became cult classics later. Meanwhile, I'll Do Anything, which Polly spent years of her life on, was one of the biggest flops of the decade. It had made Polly wonder if there was still a place for her in an industry as it was evolving. As her daughter, Sashi Bogdanovich, who worked with her mom in the mid-90s, explains. I think she felt really disillusioned with the business because it was changing. It was more and more difficult to make movies like that. And then she made, and when she had made Bottle Rocket, that was like her new hope again. And, and it wasn't a huge success, but, but it was critically acclaimed. And, and, you know, those boys went on to have huge careers. So I think she felt really satisfied with that. After Polly left Gracie Films, she landed quickly at Carsey Warner. At the time, the company was the hottest in TV, known for manufacturing most of the biggest sitcom hits of the late 80s and early 90s, from Roseanne to a different world. Carsey Warner had hired Platt to an exclusive deal to produce movies for them. They had not previously had a theatrical film division. In the press release announcing the deal, Polly spoke with typical candor about her motivations. I'm curious as to why they want to make pictures, and I'm looking forward to finding that out. Fief Sutton, a writer on Cheers and Newhart, worked with Polly on a film project at Carsey Werner in the late 90s. They were famous for for having the stable of comedy starring insane comedians, you know. So they had, you know, Brett Butler and, you know, Bill Cosby and Roseanne Barr and and, uh, all those people who were in Ness. And among them, there was... Sybil Shepherd, who did the Sybil Sybil show, you know, and she was considered to be. I I, I didn't work on the show. I don't know, you know, just a, a really uh, tough, insane star of a show. The sitcom Sybil was Shepherd's return to TV after the inimitable 1980s hit Moonlighting had resurrected her career and turned Bruce Willis into a star. According to Sybil's autobiography, this is how she learned she and Polly were working down the hall from one another. One day I went into the side door and was walking briskly down the hall, a little late for an editing meeting when I heard my name called. It was an unpleasant voice from the past, but I didn't identify it until I turned around. What the hell was Polly Platt doing there? Sybil! Guess what? I'm heading up the new feature film division for Carsey Werner. How wonderful, I said, knowing that I was up Shit's Creek without a paddle. Who's the absolutely last person on God's green earth I would want whispering in the ears of the people who signed my paychecks? 
Though Sybil's sitcom would be canceled while Polly was still working at Carsey Warner, it seems extremely unlikely Shepard's professional misfortune had anything to do with Polly's whispers. For one thing, Polly was heading up a totally separate division than the one Sybil's show was part of. Second, Sybil's categorization of Polly as an unpleasant voice from the past seems somewhat disingenuous. It's not as though Polly and Sybil had not seen one another since 1972. According to a Bogdanovich biography published in 2004, in 1989, Polly and Sybil were both working on the Fox lot. Polly on Say Anything and Sybil on Moonlighting. And when Polly was considering buying her motorhome, Larry McMurtry told her that Sybil owned one, which she used as her personal trailer on set. One day, Polly visited Sybil in her motorhome on the Fox lot and had what Polly reported as a friendly and fun conversation, much of which revolved around Texasville, the sequel to The Last Picture Show, which Peter had asked Sybil to star in. According to Polly, Sybil asked her, why don't you work on Texasville? And Polly responded, I haven't been asked. And even if I had, I couldn't go back to working with Peter. Polly wouldn't work on Texasville, but she did come to the location so she could participate in a documentary about the last picture show's legacy called Picture This. According to Antonia, who worked on the documentary crew, her parents' often contentious relationship was in a good place at the time. They were doing really well then because my mom didn't say anything awful in the interview and we didn't have to cut anything and she was very generous. It's interesting that Shepard would use her run-in with Polly at Carsey Werner as she does in her book, as part of a series of events that convinced her that the production company was out to get her, to the extent that they would hire her old romantic rival to intimidate her. It was just one more instance of the narrative of Polly's own career being taken away from her and steered back to Peter. Okay. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. 
netsuite.com slash remember. Be kind to your mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In her four years at Carsey Warner, Polly would develop two projects. The black comedy written by Fief Sutton, and a film about Ricky Nelson, which at one point she talked to Alison Anders about directing. But neither of these films got made, and Polly spent four years at Carsey Warner in a beautiful office, earning a great salary, but not actually making movies. When she took the job, Polly was already locked in to produce The Evening Star, an adaptation of McMurtry's follow-up novel to Terms of Endearment, which would star Shirley MacLaine again as Aurora and Juliette Lewis as her feisty granddaughter. Five years earlier, when Peter had directed Texasville, his own sequel to his most classic film, it hadn't captured the creative or commercial spark of the original— but Polly still had an interest in following up with Terms of Endearment's Aurora Greenaway, the character who seemed to share so much of her DNA, but who, at this point, struck Polly as an aspirational figure. As she explained in an interview, I really wanted to be this woman. The only reason I made Evening Star is because I was getting older myself. And I was fascinated with the vigor and incredible strength of the character of Aurora. She's just indomitable. She never gives up. She doesn't fall prey to depression, alcoholism, any of the things that I fell prey to in my life. I was just fascinated with this woman who would not give up or give in. It seemed to me that it was worth making a movie about her. Shirley MacLaine had chosen the Evening Star's writer, Robert Harling who she had met while making Steel Magnolias, which Harling had adapted from his own play. The Evening Star became Harling's directorial debut, with Shirley's encouragement, after several other directors signed on and then dropped out. But Harling and Polly disagreed about several aspects of the story, and once production began, Harling wouldn't allow Polly to have the level of input and collaboration that she was used to. It was the first time I worked with a first-time director who did not trust me and would not listen to me. And it was a very weird experience to have been embraced by so many directors and then to have this Bobby Harling who just turned against me and wouldn't listen to anything I had to say. They had started butting heads right away. David Moritz was hired to edit The Evening Star at Polly's request soon after he finished editing Bottle Rocket. Polly insisted that I be hired to do the movie based on my relationship with Jim and Richard Marks and Terms of Endearment, the whole thing. Uh, And she just stayed as loyal a friend as could be, even when I was witnessing her being sort of uh, marginalized with each day um, on the set and in the editing room. And it became very clear to me that Robert Harling was so defensive of 
the legacy of terms um, that anybody sort of associated, me included, was subject to, you know, a great deal of scrutiny. Polly's daughter, Sashi, worked on the Evening Star as her mother's assistant. The director, um, Bobby Harling, basically tried to fire her. Sashi remembers that over the course of the shooting, her mother soured on both the movie and the director. And so she may have said something to him in an argument. She was definitely drinking. And so it was hard for me because I have my own issues with that. So I, like, just tried to run away. Like, I just hung out with crew. And actually, Julia Lewis and I became pretty good friends. Moritz remembered that one turning point came when he suggested to Harling that they show some footage to James L. Brooks, who had directed the film that they were making a sort of sequel to. And that's when Robert Harling said, to Polly and myself, uh, James L. Brooks will never see this movie. I had no desire to have him see it. We looked at each other going, well, that's a mistake. And then basically we came to set and Bobby was like, you can't come on the set. And that was the first time for my mom and... You know, the set is her world. And so she decided she would take her chair and put it right outside the set. And then she sat there. And I was like, Mom, you you should just not come to work, you know, and we'll just figure it out. Like, and she's like, fuck you, no. (laughs) This is my movie. I don't care. He can't fire me. So anyway, yeah. So that was a real nightmare. Eventually, Polly worked out a deal. She would stay home and collect her full salary, while Sashi acted as her representative on set. A decade earlier, Polly had left the Terms of Endearment set early and ended up being brought back because she was good at handling stars. After leaving the Evening Star's location set unwillingly, Polly again was pulled back in to make sure that the single scene that Jack Nicholson had been hired to shoot came off without a hitch. As Kelly Wade recalls... Because Jack asked her to. You know, he was like, so, you know, you're going to be there. I'm coming for you. The reason that he did the cameo was because she personally called him and asked him to do it. So she flew in, and then Jack refused to come out of his trailer until she came in and proved that she was there. Because he's a little... (laughs) eccentric so I don't know what she said to him they talked for a little bit and um I have a picture of that day I don't think I've ever been more sort of like not proud but like amazed by her so anyway it was a very very bad experience for her and um she was drinking more heavily I think Polly would later call the evening star a tragedy it would be the last major Hollywood film she'd have day-to-day involvement on as a producer. But not for lack of trying. In fact, she was simultaneously throwing her energy behind another Larry McMurtry adaptation. On the weekends, I drank wine and worked on an adaptation of Larry McMurtry's brilliant book, All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers. The wonderful Fred Ruse, whom I'd known forever and who was such a great casting director and now producer, had approached me to adapt Larry's novel. It was a haunting tale of the misery of being an artist. He wanted me to adapt it and then direct it. I was determined to do a good adaptation, true to the book. 
As usual with Larry's work, the book was so rich, it was more of a problem of what not to write. Every cut of the book was painful. Of course, I've known Polly a little bit through the years because kind of interconnected with a lot of different people that I've worked with. This is Fred Ruse, the casting director and producer on Five Easy Pieces, The Godfather, American Graffiti, The Virgin Suicides, and many, many other legendary films, who had hired Polly to write the novel's adaptation. She had this old relationship with uh, McMurtry going back to uh, Last Picture Show and so forth. So she was very, very close to McMurtry and had his ear. I think he had a thing for her, to be honest. This project was announced by Variety in February 1996, around the time Bottle Rocket was released. Polly had been developing the adaptation for about two years, with Dennis Hopper at one point attached to direct. But now, Variety claimed that the goal was for Platt to make her directing debut. So why didn't she? McMurtry wrote All My Friends not long after meeting Peter and Polly, and it was published about six months after the movie of The Last Picture Show was released. The novel tells the story of Danny Deck, a grad student and boozy fuck-up who sort of accidentally marries a femme fatale, and then, after his first novel is a surprise success, falls in love with a woman named Jill Peel, who is trying to fight Hollywood sexism to succeed as an artist. Jill, who would star in a future McMurtry novel called Somebody's Darling, in which she becomes the only female director in 1970s Hollywood, seems like a combination of the real Polly Platt and a wish-fulfillment version of Polly projected by a man who loved her. That's absolutely Polly. I think Larry McMurtry would say the same thing. I've always felt... and. She never denied it to me uh, that that's her. Sashi Bogdanovich says her mom was drawn to the material not because she wanted to adapt a character based on herself, but because it might give her more insight into some of the men that had shaped her life. My impression, or what I thought, was that it reminded her of my father and what what happened to him and maybe trying to, like, work that out in her head and find find meaning in that, maybe. Polly worked on several drafts of All My Friends over the course of several years. At various times, Ethan Hawke, Robert Downey Jr., and David Arquette were all attached to the role of Danny. But even with interest from stars, a rambling story about an unhappy writer to be directed by a first-time female director was not an easy sell in the mid-1990s. Producers Fred Ruse and Don Block plugged away for years, but they never secured financing to actually make the movie. After leaving Gracie, Polly worked on a number of different screenplays, including what would become the Julianne Moore film A Map of the World, and there were other projects that she developed as a would-be director. Polly put parts of herself into these projects, but they were essentially works for hire. All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers was more personal to her, and not being able to make it had a bigger emotional impact. When it didn't work out, 
her confidence took a hit, as Sashi recalls. I think she just really had been beaten down by that point. And I think she really enjoyed propping up a director and making a movie in that collaborative way. And I think that in a way, she didn't really want to be the director anymore. She gave so much to all of these movies and got nothing for it. This is Amy Pascal, the longtime head of Sony Pictures, who is now an independent producer who was recently nominated for a Best Picture Oscar for Little Women. You know, she wasn't ambitious in the way that women are now. She was from a different era when women thought that they were happy to be helpers on the side and just, you know, be the smartest person in the room, but not take it on herself. It, it, was a whole, it was a different era. She had grown up in a different time. You know, she had come of age in a different time. And I think she might have been quite resentful about that as she got older. But I think early on, she didn't even know to be. She should have been a director, for one thing, in her own right. And she had to always, you know, she was always working for these men who she made better. And she brought out the best in them. Um, but she, I don't think she ever would have had the courage to do it herself. And she should have. Well, I think everybody has that little voice in your head like, I don't know, can you do it? This is Kelly Wade. We know she could do it and she wanted to do it, but she also wanted to do it sort of on her own terms, which is, you know, the right cast, the right script, the, you know, you sort of, you want to have some of those like, you know, creative liberties and, you know, that's hard when you can't even get the money to make it. It's frustrating. The number of female directors working in Hollywood had increased exponentially over the course of the 80s and early 90s. But it was still incredibly difficult for women to get financing for a first movie. And once they did that, it still wasn't smooth sailing, as Alison Anders points out. I mean, look, even in my generation, there were women that dropped out. They were dropping like flies. You know, we'd see like some great movie from one of them, and then that would be the end of that. And, you know, partly that was the industry and partly it was just, you know, you just get sick of trying to get the financing for your vision and, and to get your vision the way that you want it. You know, it's, a, it's still, I think, very tough. It was really, really hard for them in a way that you didn't necessarily understand. And in a weird way, it was easier. And then the 90s happened and it got harder again. This is Rachel Abramowitz. I just think that the 90s came in and like this, it was sort of like the kind of um, the women's movement of the 70s was over. The big female stars who were incredibly helpful to people like Fonda, Streisand, their careers were on the wane. And culturally, it was sort of like the children of Reagan and sort of like women had gone into the power structure. And it just sort of seemed like you hit a wall of like, oh, this isn't important anymore. We've gotten beyond this. But in fact, by not being active about it, it sort of slid backwards. One thing that had changed for the better by the mid-90s was the number of female executives in a position to hire a female writer-director. After Polly left Gracie, 
she began developing two projects with Jersey Films. Jersey film partner Stacy Scher had recently broken up with a filmmaker she had worked with. Obviously, Polly could relate. And Stacy, a female producer and executive at the center of the biggest wave of new American superstar directors since the rise of Peter Bogdanovich, could relate to many of the struggles Polly had faced as a woman trying to assert herself in Hollywood. I think that I understand that there are things that intuitively I related to in her experience, and it was almost like I was writing the wrong in her. Like, I couldn't look at the way that I probably got treated at that time period, but I could be offended by seeing this great woman and not feel like she was being respected. Stacy felt an urgency to push Polly to direct, and through Jersey Films, she hired Polly to work on two projects, an adaptation of Kristen McCloy's sexy 1988 novel Velocity and a film based on An Unquiet Mind, Kay Jamison's landmark memoir about her own struggles with bipolar disorder. Neither Velocity nor An Unquiet Mind would get made. A lot of movies developed in Hollywood don't get made, for a lot of reasons. An Unquiet Mind fell apart because, though Polly cranked out multiple drafts, she felt the author wanted her to sanitize the real story, leaving out elements of sexuality that Polly felt were crucial to the dramatization. Velocity was a different beast, a book about sexuality and also grief. Lisa Maria Rodano was hired to write the screenplay. Her background was in comedy. She had written the play Brooklyn Laundry, which James L. Brooks had produced with Polly's assistance, and she couldn't quite nail the tone of the material. There were a lot of drafts, and, and I, you know, I, I, it's funny. I wish I could have a chance to write it now because it wouldn't be, I could write it in a weekend, I think, but... I don't know. I wish I could now. I wish Polly was here now. Because her vision, that's a gift and a talent that, that's rare. She just looked at you and read you out. She looked at a scene and, and got what was working, what wasn't working. I mean, like her vision was laser and very soulful, very deeply informed. It wasn't just Rodano who had a hard time in the 90s figuring out how to approach this material. Stacy Sher remembers that they ultimately had to move on from Velocity because the industry at that time was not hospitable to a film about a young woman's sexually charged experience. It was almost impossible to get a female coming-of-age story made, which seems crazy now because obviously they're so popular. But, you know, it wasn't that far after us making reality bites and even that film was almost impossible to get made and if Winona Ryder had not signed on board we never would have gotten that movie made. At the beginning of the decade it had been declared that Thelma and Louise was going to change everything in terms of leveling the playing field for movies about the female experience made and marketed on the same budgetary level as movies about men. But it didn't. And if it opened any doors for movies about the messy lives of women, many of them were directed, like Thelma and Louise, by men. 
female filmmakers were only allowed enough opportunities so that film studios could point to a few examples and say, well, we gave so-and-so an opportunity. What more do you want? And many women in power accepted this state of things as being just the way it was. God, we all compromised so much and didn't even know we were. This is Amy Pascal. We didn't even know. And I was a big feminist trying to make movies with women all the time. But ultimately, Polly was one of the few women who were offered opportunities to direct. And many people I talked to suggested she held herself back. I think that the bar for perfection of whatever it was that she was going to do first, you know, I think she felt that there would be such a microscope on whatever she directed And as much as I think she worried about how things would be received, I think she also, her own exacting eye, I I just, I think she she might not have been able to handle, handle it if she didn't think it was up to her own standards, which were extremely high. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. At the end of the 90s, a few things happened. Polly's contract at Carsey Werner ended. She was now 60, but didn't feel ready to retire. I think she was still working on stuff and she did want to write a memoir. You know, um, that was sort of what we kind of had decided is that she would still work from home. She would still work on all my friends are going to be strangers. She would start to write. She's like, I feel like I need to write a little bit of a memoir, sort of my side of the story, because, you know, there was a lot of different sides of different stories going around. A lot of those stories going around were in, or sparked by, the release of Peter Biskin's landmark history of 1960s and 70s Hollywood, Easy Riders Raging Bulls, which was first published in 1998. The book included interviews with a number of women who had worked to support the careers of their now ex-husbands, including Marsha Lucas, Toby Rafelson, and Polly. The L.A. Times ran a story about the sexism that the book revealed. Biskind had interviewed many female partners of the male directors, whose great achievements and personality defects were at the center of the book. Some of these women were unhappy with the final, gossipy form the book had taken, and or felt they had been used by Biskind, who published their bitchy assessments of their exes, while evincing little interest in who these women were and what they had or could have accomplished outside of their famous spouses. 
The LA Times article even referred to the women of Easy Rider's Raging Bulls as having chosen, quote, to be handmaidens to greatness. By this point, Polly was known to journalists around town to be a go-to for a choice quote about, well, pretty much anything having to do with Hollywood of the previous three decades, which was why she became a key source for Nancy Griffin when she was co-writing the book Hit and Run about John Peters, Peter Goober, and their disastrous run as the top executives at Sony Pictures. She was absolutely the best person who would... You know, she'd give you the unvarnished truth. You could ask her anything and she would she would tell it to you straight. And she didn't seem to be mindful of whether she was politic or not. She was a truth teller. This was a boon for journalists, but it wasn't always so great for Polly and the people around her, as Antonia recalls. Sometimes she would say cruel things in the press, and I think that got her in a lot of trouble, you know, Um, especially between my dad and her. Part of Polly's reputation in the 1990s had to do with how freely and frequently she felt compelled to speak to journalists about Peter Bogdanovich. As Rachel Abramowitz recalls, She was crazy obsessed with him at the time. She was very, very charming and totally fun to to be with, but you're also like, she really shouldn't do that. Um, I mean, I just remember thinking it was a little nutty. Just as a woman or as a person, you don't want someone to be obsessed with their ex many years later. (laughs) You're like, please move on with your life. You're so amazing in your own life. Your life didn't stop with Peter. This whole other thing happened. There is a huge life she had after Peter. This is Kelly Wade. And that's the only life I know. Because my dad met her on Paper Moon. She was already divorced from Peter. I mean, I I consider the majority of her career after those three films. Peter was a source of aggravation, I think, and unhappiness. This is Nessa Himes, who was one of several people to suggest that Polly's continuing focus on Peter had to do with the lingering trauma of not just being romantically humiliated— but also having the last picture show victory lap taken away from her, thus undercutting her professionally. Well, because he was, you know, he broke her heart. I think it was um, to be cheated on like that in front of other people is is really a very unpleasant thing. And um, she's just so much better than he was. Polly had held on to the idea of Peter as the platonic ideal of the creative partner and had attempted to replicate their bond with other directors she worked with, most notably with James L. Brooks. But she was never able to quite match the magic of that one lost relationship. And the fact that it remained so elusive might have made her fixate on it all the more. The fact remains that, despite all of her accomplishments... Because Polly Platt never directed a film, she was never able to have her own abilities judged on the same level as the directors she worked with, whether they were her ex-husbands or not. In 2002, Polly sat down for a long oral history conversation videotaped by the Art Directors Guild. At the time, 
She was working on a film she hoped to direct called The Two Harbors. Directing seemed to linger as an unrealized ambition, and The War of the Roses stuck in her memory as a big missed opportunity. I've never directed anything, and I'm ashamed that I haven't. It just never seems to be... As I said one time that I was going to do it, I was pretty unhappy with the script, and my husband died. Now I've decided that if I see anything at all in the picture, I'll direct it, because I'm getting older and it's almost too late. It's almost too late. Nobody starts directing a film in their late 50s. Side note, by this time, Polly was actually 63, but she had been lying about her age for a long time because of these very concerns about aging out of a position of currency in Hollywood. She was definitely concerned that she wouldn't get hired because she was too old. Like, people would stop wanting to work with her and hire the younger generation. She's like, I'm, I'm too old and I don't have... You know, that, that kind of was a... And I think maybe some of this has to do with her own personal history, with um, what happened with my dad. And, you know, she was left for a younger woman. So I think... And it was only 10 years, but that's a big 10 years. Beyond ageism and sexism and Polly's own issues with confidence... There was another factor that may have held her back. I don't know if you know everything about Polly. This is Nessa Himes. Well, I mean, I, I know that she was an alcoholic. That's right. Okay, so you can stop right there. That's where the problem was. That's exactly where the problem was. She was unreliable. And she... It just it was impossible to see. I mean, you just see this brilliant woman. And I mean, when we were working on the assistant, I just keep saying, I hate to say this, but we were working on the assistant. We, would, we were in a you know, writer's room on the Warner's lot or something. And, you know, she'd come to the meeting with a six pack of beer. And uh, she never was on, you know, drunk. I've seen her very drunk, but I, she wasn't like that when she was working. But it, it it affected her career, that's for sure. It just defies logic to think that here was this talented, um, brilliant woman who knew how to make a movie better than anybody I pretty much knew. So what happened, you know? What happened in those meetings? What happened was was, I would assume... Not being sober. That's what I assume. I wasn't in those, but I know her, and I knew her very well. And it was a problem. Polly had been going on and off the wagon for a long time. But in the late 1990s, sobriety finally clicked for her. AA meetings became a regular part of her life, and she became closer to Nancy Griffin, who was getting sober at the same time. I asked Nancy if she felt sobriety had changed Polly. I think she developed more, a little more self-respect and restraint. She worked very hard on herself as, as a sober person. She was aware of all her failings, and um, she worked on them. She was very concerned always with her, her relationship with her daughters, and I think wanted to be a, a better mother. I think every mother who drinks at some 
phase of a child's life is be, and then get sober, the mother gets sober, then she naturally becomes concerned with what damage she might have she might have done um, to her children. That's a that's a natural instinct. And I think Polly was very concerned with that, with Sashi and Antonia, because she, she loved them both to death. Polly's friendship with Nancy led to Polly playing a small part in Allison Anders' 1999 feature, Sugartown, which Nancy produced. Anders cast Polly as the mother of Lucinda Jenny's character, whose husband, played by John Doe from the band X, is a rocker about to leave his pregnant wife to go on tour with a sexy lady singer. I mean, when I think about Polly, I, I think about her uh, nurturing quality, both as, I mean, as a mother and a stepmother, but also, hello. I mean, she nurtured that career that gave us Peter Bogdanovich. I mean, those movies would not have happened without that sort of nurturing quality that she had and that and that um that generosity to um to the extreme, you know, for um what became his body of work which really should be shared with her. And then it was just kind of natural that when when uh Nancy suggested Polly, I was like, "Oh my god, that's like such a perfect mother for Lucinda. Over the next few years, Polly continued to write both screenplays and her memoir. She read voraciously. She guest programmed a series of classic films for Oprah's Oxygen Network. Both Sashi and Antonia moved away, and though Polly would frequently visit them, in L.A. she lived alone and could become isolated. When she stopped self-medicating with alcohol, She had to deal with her mental health and struggled to find a cocktail of medications that worked for her. There were, um, I don't know, um, tranquilizers or stuff like that. This is Nessa Himes. And I remember she'd come to New York. I was living in New York then. And she'd come and she'd stay with me, but she was was in terrible shape. she couldn't sleep at night unless the radio was on. She could only eat yogurt. She, and her, she was shaking. She was just depressed, I think. This is Sashi Bogdanovich. She was a workaholic, and then that was gone, and her kids were gone. And, you know, I get it. Um, and then she, you know, seemed okay. But it was weird. It was like she didn't go out to lunch anymore. And it was almost like... I, I mean, I guess, you know, like Jim and all these people are still working. So I guess it's she slowed down and they just kind of forgot about her. I don't know. Around 2003, Jim Brooks called Polly and asked for her help on a new film he was working on. In 1997, Brooks had written, produced, and directed As Good As It Gets, a major, major hit, which grossed over $300 million in the U.S., and earned Oscars for its two leads, Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt. Though it took him seven years to make his follow-up, Spanglish, starring Adam Sandler and Taya Leone as a wealthy Los Angeles couple and Spanish actress Paz Vega as their Mexican nanny, in the early 2000s, 
the prospect of a new Jim Brooks movie was still a big deal. Several people told me that Polly worked on Spanglish, though no one could recall in what capacity. And though she appears in some of the official publicity stills for the movie, she did not get a credit on it. As Sashi recalls, So she did go on the set of that for a few weeks, and um, she really never said that much about it. It was actually, I don't think it was very satisfying for her. By this point in her career, Sashi says, Polly had sort of run out of steam. It did defeat her, and I think she was like, pretty devastated that all of her work didn't add up to kind of, I don't know. I don't know what she wanted. I think she would have been happy to do a couple movies here and there and, you know, that kind of thing. And I think when she did the thing with Jim, she realized that it was just maybe over. In 2009, Polly moved to Brooklyn. Sashi had married and given birth to a son, and now she was pregnant again and had invited Polly to come help with her grandchildren. With both of them in the city for the first time in decades, Jules Fisher noted a difference in Polly. Did you guys reconnect when she moved back to New York? Yes. And then it was, she was a different person. I think she had really a difficult period of life in Hollywood where sexism was rampant, where uh, cronyism was and is rampant. And I heard these stories of losing jobs, how she got them, uh, her competition. uh, And she knew so much more than the people she was working with. Polly was a healthy and active 70-year-old who many people said looked younger. And she had paid for a treatment or two to facilitate that. But very soon after she moved to Brooklyn... It became apparent that something was wrong, as Barbara Boyle recalls. And I, I have a, a granddaughter and a grandson, and she said, I, I, I want your relationship with Lily to be my relationship with my grandchildren. And I said, go for it. It's a great relationship. And then, of course, the first time I saw her in New York, it was like, what's the matter with you? And I remember we were having lunch at the plaza, And she told me. She kept falling. We just, we couldn't figure out why she couldn't pick up her feet. Like she kept tripping over her feet. As her closest family member geographically, Sashi was present when Polly's problems escalated. I think she was drinking off and on, yeah. Uh, She would try to do it and then, you know, she would hide it, I think, from herself. And and it was definitely her demon. But apparently she used to drink and then go to a meeting. And then when she did come here, she told me that when she moved here, she did tell me a couple times that she fell down the stairs. So then I was like, is she drinking? Um, It was 2009 Christmas and then 2010. So she called me the day after Christmas. And she was like, it was like 830 or something. And she's like, I think I broke my ankle. And it was like the middle of the night and she's like, I didn't want to call you. I was like, so she'd been sitting there in pain. So she was like, I thought it was 8.30 was a good time. I was like, mom, what's wrong with you? <laughs> so I took her and um, to the hospital and she broke her legs. And um, so they said it and everything. And then 
so she had to be in the hospital overnight. And then the next day when I went in, um, she told me that the neurologist looked at her hand and this part of her muscle was gone, like um, this part of her hand. We recorded this interview in person in January. And here, Sashi gripped the area between her thumb and forefinger. She had, had been having problems zipping up her clothes. like, And so she had been getting the doorman to do it because I moved her into a doorman building. I was like, oh, this is perfect. You know, she's 70. And I just figured, you know, it wasn't, I thought it was just age. Polly was diagnosed with ALS, also called Lou Gehrig's disease, after the Yankee slugger who was forced into retirement after his diagnosis. ALS progressively kills the neurons that control muscles. In Polly's case, her brain remained lucid, so she would think, grab the zipper and pull it up. But the message wouldn't get to her hand. Over time, the disease burns out more and more neurons, so that a patient begins to lose physical functions, one by one. Eventually, they can't walk, talk, or eat. Treatment is mostly palliative, and there's no cure. It was not the diagnosis that we wanted. (laughs) This is Kelly Wade. And Sasha and I went with her, you know, when we got the news. So it was really hard. (laughs) You know, we just kept saying, are you sure it's just not like, you know, wet brain from alcohol? (laughs) Oh, Oh, so... That was really tough. It was just brutal. I wished it was the alcoholism. It was just such a horrible blow. It's just such a horrible disease. You know, nobody deserves that. From diagnosis to death, the average ALS patient gets two to four years. Polly got about a year and a half. And because it's a degenerative disease, her last few months were very difficult. She would lose the ability to eat, to walk, to talk. She was realistic about the fact that this was all coming. So she spent 2010 making the most of the time she had left. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Peggy Steffens, Polly's oldest friend, reconnected with her shortly before the diagnosis. I would go out every week to visit, and we would just drink ourselves. We just drank and drank and drank, but she had little Madeline, her poodle, who loved to lick my fingers because they tasted of cigars. Paula Harold, who hadn't seen Polly since I'll Do Anything, reconnected with her after the diagnosis. 
then everybody kept calling me and saying, you know, Polly's in Brooklyn and she has ALS. You have to, you know, you have to take, you have to see her. And I go, she tried to strangle me. <laughs> and so anyway, um, I did, I went to Brooklyn. I, I became very good friends with her and, um, she, um, also she knew that she wasn't going to be able to eat or anything, you know, soon. And so I would, we would go to like my friends who live in Brooklyn were major foodies. So I would take her to all these restaurants and, you know, we'd sit down and she'd order a dozen oysters and then she'd have one and say to the waiter, I want another dozen. Cause she knew that, you know, soon it would, you know, all be over. One unexpected but delightful visitor was Polly's old drinking buddy from the broadcast news pre-production, William Hurt, whose last meal with Polly was facilitated by Paula Harold. I was in in my neighborhood on the Upper West Side, and I bumped into Bill Hurt, and I told him that Polly, you know, was sick, and he's a lovely person, and he um, called me, and we went you know, by subway to Brooklyn, and we took Polly, you know, out to lunch. I, and I think that made her really happy. Yeah, it was pretty major. And plus, then she was already in a wheelchair. We weren't going that far. And getting into cabs was really a nightmare. And so thank God, because he took her in the wheelchair, I don't think I would have been able to do it. Everyone I talked to that got to see or speak with Polly after her diagnosis was stunned by how quickly she deteriorated. It was hard to believe that someone who looked so good, I don't mean pretty, but she looked healthy physically. Her face looked good, and but she was telling me what she was experiencing in her brain. And uh, I felt very sad. I felt so sad thinking of it. Uh, so I tried to see her as much as I could in Brooklyn. Barbara Boyle began visiting Polly frequently in New York until Polly told her, to stop coming. Again, it was the plaza. She had a, um, a cane and a car and driver waiting for her and was, to me, crippled. She couldn't eat. I had to feed her. And her driver brought her to the table and then had to take her back. And it was horrendous. And she said, don't, don't come to see me again. And I thought, it's near the end. It's heartbreaking. That was it. I love you. Don't come to see me again. And she got into the car. As Polly's condition declined, it became apparent she wouldn't be able to speak audibly for much longer, which made it urgent that she reconnect with people she hadn't spoken with in a while. Cameron Crowe talked to Polly on the phone, and then he wrote her a letter in which he listed 15 things he would always remember about her. One, you're impatient with phonies. Five, you're legendary not just because of your work, but because of how you do it, with passion, and most importantly, six, you are fucking funny. And 15, you let me tell you that I love you and that felt good. Talk to you soon. As usual, I'll be calling you back from this office across the street from our, from our original Say Anything offices. Isn't it nice to have crossed the street together? Love, Cameron. So what did you want to communicate to her? That I, I loved her, and I loved her for, for her belief in us and what we were able to do, and she was just so fun. Uh, 
And I, I just wanted to make sure that in the kind of mists of time and, you know, um, you know, rough encounters or whatever that like, I remember the good stuff because the good stuff was really good and, and fun. And that's what I wanted to communicate to her. And she had that kind of giggle in her, in her voice, even when she could barely speak. And it made me feel like, well, that's, that's a circle. That's a circle that, that, that needed to be closed because to not close that circle would have been to, to, to really drop an opportunity to tell somebody that, that mattered and will continue to matter that they matter. I guess we were just friends till she died. I saw her die. It's, that's really the, the, the most difficult thing for me is to think about that. This is Nessa Himes. I think it's the worst thing I've ever been through in my life. The worst. I remember the, uh, it was like about a year and a half um, of it. And then one day I was, I was going up to the apartment and Sashi was coming out and she said, you sh- you're not, you're not going to want to do that. You don't, you're not really want to see that. And I said, well, I, w- I will. And I went in and, and Polly was just, you know, almost gone. And um, she was lying in her bed and, and she looked up at me and she said, Nessie. And that's, the last thing. I mean, she knew who I was just at that moment. And then it just got so bad. Um, and then she couldn't swallow. So she didn't, but, you know, before all that, we knew she didn't want a feeding tube. She just wanted to go once she couldn't eat anymore. We were at the specialist and they were like, okay, so here's the menu for what you can, um, you know, put in the blender, mm-hmm. like whatever they call that blended food. And, and this is how you cook it. And my mom was like, no way. <laughs> I'm not eating that. She was like, hell no. So, and you know, I understood her enough. She's like, you just pour the wine down my throat, Sashi. I was like, okay, mom. <laughs> but I mean, it's like, that's funny. Yeah. It was funny. <laughs> it's funny. And you know, I mean, I wouldn't want, to have it any other way, you know, I mean, it, to, for her to handle it that way was in retrospect, I think about it. It's, it was a blessing for me. I feel two ways about it. Either you, you can have it black and white. You can measure someone's character by their death, or you can, you can see that there's nuance and people are, you know, I don't want to judge anyone else. Um, but she, she died like a champion. <laughs> Polly's family organized a memorial service in Los Angeles for a family and Polly's closest friends and co-workers. Many of the people who knew Polly best and worked with her closely gave impassioned speeches about her talent and her lasting impact. I couldn't. I was afraid to speak, and I couldn't speak because I thought it would be too emotional. But Ryan O'Neill spoke. Because he was in Paper Moon. I mean, he was in What's Up, Doc, but Paper Moon. And he said, every time I did a take, I would look over at Polly and she would nod or something, see if it was all right. It was so loving and so beautiful. This is Stacy Cher. And he basically said that Polly taught him to act. 
that he would look for her face by the monitor and if she was and after a take and if she was like smiling and giving him thumbs up he knew that he had gotten it he he just said everything he learned about acting he learned from her on that movie he said i don't remember who directed that film of course peter was right there he said it peter did not speak at polly's memorial It's been nearly a decade since Polly's passing. And still, many people I spoke to became extremely emotional talking about how her life ended. There was a lot of sadness, such as from Barbara Boyle. Of course I'm sad. I'm really old and she could be old with me. You know, this was a woman who loved life and and tried to live it made a lot of mistakes, had a lot of successes. and uh, But she was always, you know, at either end of that, great success or great problems. There's nothing in the middle about Polly. And a lot of anger that Polly never got the recognition she deserved while she was alive. This is Peggy Steffens. I don't want to cry, but I just... How cruel... Men are Hollywood. When here we had a Polly Platt that actually could do anything. She could have done a film single-handedly and was never allowed to. So these shitty men, these men that are worth nothing... As Jules Fisher adds, I think that she was a brilliantly talented movie person who was little recognized, not given her due, and forgotten. And all of that is sad. All of it is part of the system. Uh, Most of us are not remembered after we've gone. But for her not to be recognized during it was really sad. And I think that started with Peter because of his need to be the top person. I don't think he wanted to share anything with her. And yet they were in love and she did. I was a great, I think she was a great lady. And not that, not that we want to badmouth Peter. This is Kelly Wade. That's not the goal here. The goal is, is that if you look at Polly's career after Paper Moon, she went on to work with James Brooks, Cameron Crowe, Wes Anderson. I mean, it's not just one person. She didn't just work with one first-time director. She worked with four or five and went on to have a huge career with them. I mean, Jim Brooks won the Oscar. I mean, you know what I'm saying? The last interview I conducted for this project was with Lisa Maria Rodano. And maybe it was because I knew I was coming to the end, but I felt that she summed up so much of what I ultimately wanted to say about Polly. At one point, we talked about how Polly struggled to balance her work and home lives, had elements of a 1930s or 40s woman's melodrama, like Stella Dallas in 70s Hollywood. 
Exactly. Exactly. She really personifies that struggle. Um, it's it's it didn't begin with her generation. It's certainly not ending with mine or yours. It's a tough business. Um, it's a tougher business for women. I'm stating the obvious, and um, it it's also tough when you know not not to be bitchy and gossip, but like when the man that you love and trust betrays you right when you're making a film with him that ends up being an important film like how freaking complicated is that you know and then she continues to make films with him how could that not have cost her I mean that takes a piece out of your ass right I mean you can't you you can't do that a lot well maybe some people can't but she she is too sensitive to take a lot of those kinds of things in life and then just go yeah you know like I'm a tank I'll just keep going she wasn't a tank she was a very sensitive, very, um, you know, like, she's like if it was a sunny day, she'd need sunglasses more than you. That was the kind of person. She was just more sensitive. So, and that was her talent, which you see in these movies. Her talent is all over those movies. But that same talent, you know, I'm not going to say it made her weaker, but it it may have used her energy up faster than it might have in other people. Um, she burned brighter. And she took, you know, some hits along the way, you know? When I asked Lisa if she had any other memories about Polly that she wanted to add, she said that she remembered that Polly had beautiful hands and that much of her talent was tactile. For instance, in order to know if a fabric was right for a costume, she had to touch it. A few other people had said similar things to me about Polly. But only in talking to Lisa at the end of this process did my brain make a connection. I told Lisa what Sashi had said about how Polly's hands had been one of the first places to show the deterioration of ALS. Oh my God. Oh my God, I can't believe that. That's so intense. Wow. And that really is a part of her that meant so much to me. And like the hand is, there's a reason why Da Vinci drew it so much. It is the most phenomenal piece of machinery. It has got a million nerves in it. A million nerves. And to, to have felt like that was a part of her talent and her expression and her appreciation of aesthetic beauty and aesthetic qualities and then to, to hear that that was a place where she started to decline is very emotional to hear very yeah I don't think you're going to find a lot of polys the people aren't really built like that anymore careers can't sort of Careers like that don't really happen anymore. It's like a very different world. And no, you can't replace a person like Polly. And you can't replace a moment in, in film in which she existed. Um, that's, that's not going to come again. Something else wonderful will come. And she, she, you know, and she was kind of badass. <laughs> Has to be said. We've tried to say that and so much more about Polly Platt over the course of these last 10 weeks. Thanks for listening.
Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was produced, written, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Special thanks to our special guest, Maggie Siff, who read the words of Polly Platt from Polly's unpublished memoir, It Was Worth It, and other sources. Today's episode included excerpts from interviews with... Allison Anders, Antonia Bogdanovich, Sashi Bogdanovich, Barbara Boyle, Cameron Crow, Kelly Wade, Nancy Griffin, Nessa Himes, Paula Harold, Peggy Steffens, Rachel Abramowitz, Fred Ruse, Fief Sutton. Don Block, Stacy Scher, Lisa Maria Rodano, Amy Pascal, David Moritz, and Jules Fisher. Special thanks to them and everyone else who took the time to talk about Polly Platt with us. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Brendan Whalen is in charge of our social media and does additional research assistance. Additional research assistance and transcription by Kristen Sales and Wiley Wiggins. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Today's episode was produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our audio was edited by Tamika Weatherspoon and mixed by Brendan Burns. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes, which include all of our sources, information about music, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can support the show on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth or buy merch for our show at podswag.com slash remember. Keep up with all of our episodes by subscribing on Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. Good night.